Hello, my name is Ben. My name is Eddie. And we are your hosts of the Two Vague Podcast this week. One word, two hosts, stories, trivia, and video games. Eddie, I am so happy that you're here. Thank you for being on the show, man. Of course, of course. It was really awesome meeting you at PAX. Likewise, and I'm so glad we got to get you on the show. So do you want to introduce yourself first and we can uh, go from there about Starvaders? Yeah, sure. So yeah, my name is Eddie. I'm the lead designer for a game called Starvaders, which is, it's kind of like a deck building card game, but mixed with grid-based tactics, and there's a lot of Space Invaders energy in it as well. So yeah, development's been going pretty well. We recently signed with our publisher, Joystick Ventures. Cool. And now we're just all full-time working on the game, creating content, doing the art, polishing the game until... It's ready for release. How far in development are you on Star Raiders? Is it pretty much a done deal and now it's just spit and polish or? Nah, not at all. We started working on the game maybe a year and a half ago, but still not done yet. And we're probably, it'll probably take another year to finish. Okay. And you said earlier in our pre-show conversation that you've got a Discord server where you interact with people who are playing the game regularly. That's part of your development cycle. Is that something where your game develops, like the story and things change in the game as far as new content, and then you pass it by the community and say, hey, you want to check this out, see how it works, let us know. Is it like a step-by-step process where you're going, okay, well, if we add this piece or this card or this thing or this level, is it like that? How does that development cycle work for you as an independent developer? Our game, just because of the genre it is, um, which is like a card game, has a lot of moving pieces, a lot of interaction. It's very difficult to balance. So I would say our development process is very iterative. Uh We'll think of changes to make, balance changes, for example, or new new design, new content. We'll implement it into a beta. Then we have a group of internal playtesters that are helping us so we'll push that beta to the playtesters and see what they think about it. Okay. You add her a lot of feedback, add her what people think, and it's just, it's this iterative process. So we keep right. repeating that cycle over and over until everyone's happy with the product. I have been in a software development environment that was focused around a financial piece of software. They had the idea of what this new feature was, for example, right? And they built yeah. that feature and they got feedback before they implemented. So this is what our customers want, so let's build this. And then it was more about finding the bugs and working those out. Is that part of the beta focus, or is the beta focus more on how do we develop and grow this game into something that's enjoyable? Or is it a little bit of both? I'd say it's a little bit of both. Some parts of it is trying to really figure out the design itself, like what's working, what's not working. Some part of it is try to catch all the bugs before release, and then there's a bit of everything, I'd say. Seems like a very standard sort of way to develop a product, this whole beta thing where it's iterative and you go, okay, so here's the new thing, let's make sure nothing's broken, and then get feedback at the same time. Yeah, I'd almost say it's kind of um, the overall idea of game design as a study to be iterative. Uh-huh. Um, even without playtesters, like for myself, for example, 
when I'm trying to design something, it's really hard to think out the gameplay just in the head, right? Right. It's a lot easier to actually implement something either through code or maybe even on paper and try it out and see if it works. Yeah. And that was what I thought was very interesting about our conversation. I asked uh, another developer that was making a game called Animal Country. It was similar to yours because it was cards, but it was also a hexagon, sort of like a Sellers of Catan kind of presentation on a board. It's kind of a cutesy-looking Disney-quality animation. They build it as a hearthstone for kids kind of thing where it's it's not as dark, right? It's more Zootopia-style stories. It very much uh, looks like it belongs on something like a Switch, not too stereotype switch games very polished very disney looking and the gameplay itself is is a strategy one-on-one kind of thing i asked them if they did any of this sort of manual testing and they said no they did it strictly on the computer it was mostly design it and then put it into play and then play it on the computer but it sounds like you guys did some actual physical testing like on paper or made a mock-up physically is that a part of your process when you're designing because it doesn't sound like it's everyone's for star vaders we actually did uh, we call it the paper prototype but it wasn't actually paper we we used this program called tabletop simulator oh okay it's on steam it's kind of like a 3d environment that has a table and there's like cards on there and you can like write your own things it kind of simulates a board game space, if that makes sense. Gotcha. But we did make a, our first prototype of Star Vaders was on Tabletop Simulator. Okay. With okay. like cards that I've written down on and like played out myself. So that kind of essence was still there. Now, did that help your developers when they were programming? Does Tabletop Simulator interact with other sort of things? Like if you want to take it, like export it out of Tabletop Simulator... Is there a way to do that, or is this just a method by which you can just simulate a board game in a computer and that's it? There's no easy way to export the game, yeah. It's as if it was on a real table with real cards that you write down on. Okay. It, it was, for us, it was really just to hash out the idea and make sure it's playable before committing to it. I know this is a very long-winded introduction to you, but I'm just so fascinated by the process and how it differs from other development processes as far as software is concerned, there are a lot of similarities there, but there are also a lot of differences. And I think um, the involvement of the community seemed to happen with the software that I was working with before even committing anything to code. It wasn't like iterative, like we're getting feedback as we do things. It's pretty much, we get all the feedback up front, show them the mock-up, and then we code it, and then it's in the product. And then the beta is just to work out all the bugs. It sounds like it varies from company to company, I'm sure, how they handle it, right? Yeah, most likely. And I'm not sure how most of the industry handles it either, because we're pretty new into this is our first game, right? So So here's the question that's a loaded question due to our current uh, environment. There is something going on with Unity. And Unity, to explain to folks, is a game engine that people use historically for the fact that it's inexpensive. Is that correct? It's inexpensive, but it has a lot of really great developer tools for it that you can use. I can 
talk about the pros of it. It's very inexpensive. It has a huge community of developers that are using it, which mm-hmm. means they'll output tutorials for it. If you ask questions on forums, they'll have. There's for sure going to be people that know the answers to it. There's a huge asset store that has a, like a big marketplace of different assets you can buy to help out the game. A lot of um, utility in that. What do you mean by assets? Things like art and music? Like 3D models or even tools like procedural generation, for example, or animation systems. Okay. And they're just kind of add-on sort of things? Exactly. They're add-ons that you can buy, but it's it, it, there's a huge marketplace for it uh-huh. that is very useful for development. Also, it is it was one of the industry standards as well, which means that if you know how to use Unity, that's a bonus in your um, CV, right? If companies are looking to hire developers. Okay, so those are the pros. It's very well known. Now, in recent news, and I want to just make sure that you're okay with talking about this because, I mean, I understand that you're, you use Unity for the game, so I don't want to cause any problems with the dozen listeners of my podcast or whatever but but i mean just just to explain it from the standpoint of someone who is using this tool what is the issue with the fee structure and is there a difference since they have changed the fee structure recently they there was an issue where an installation fee is being charged can you explain what the issue is from the side of a developer and why it's problematic? There are two very big issues with the initial proposed changes that Unity did. Mm-hmm. For the initial proposition, from my understanding, they were planning to change their pricing model and introduce a runtime-based fee mm-hmm. to all games, including already released games, that we're using Unity. Okay. The two problems with this system, first of all, they were planning to change the pricing model for games that had already released using a previous version of Unity or not updating Unity anymore, but they would still have to pay for new installations of their game afterwards. That does not make any sense, yeah. Games like Among Us, for example, was made in Unity, already released many years ago, extremely popular, but still have a bunch of installs every day, right? Right. And they would have had to pay Unity millions of dollars in runtime fee. Because of how popular that game is, yeah. Exactly. The second problem, I would say, well, I mean, I think the fir- that first problem was a extremely dangerous thing to allow happen mm-hmm. because it just means that Unity doesn't need to care about uh, or anyone using Unity can't trust Unity to not change the contract again in the future. Right. So if they can just change it at any time uh, they want and no one says anything, then what makes them not do it again? Exactly. So the second issue, Unity was trying to propose to have developers pay Unity for every time someone installs their game. The big problem with this is that there is no reliable way to calculate how many times a game has been installed yeah. in the first place. There's a lot of weird uh, loopholes. Like, if a user reinstalls a game on a different computer, 
that would count. There's no way to figure out that it's the same user, right? Right. If a user installs a game on different devices, or even if a user pirates a game, there's no legitimate way to figure out if a game has been pirated or not. And if Unity does have a system to figure out if a game has been pirated or not, then they would be millionaires already. Okay, anti-piracy software. But also, isn't there a piece of that that is their collecting data on you kind of thing like as a developer as well if they know this information well then they should have disclosed this up front and you know what i mean like how are you going to enforce that unless you have something in place that already counts yeah exactly i mean that sounds shady too everything was shady (laughs) yeah but from my perspective it almost felt like unity probably didn't have any system in place to measure that in the first place. They proposed the changes and then they were trying to figure out how to do it afterwards from their various answers and uh, frequently asked questions and answers to people asking them how they would do it. Mm -hmm. It seemed like they hadn't fully figured it out themselves yet. The overall effect of this original proposition on the community was how can a company even let such a bad PR disaster happen in the first place. They did yeah. not have, they did not go through many employees that had backlash against the changes. Did they not understand what their own customers want in their service? I think the issue is more about the customers. At the company, you still need to involve your developers in these proposals in order you know you can't just make a blanket decision not knowing the concerns of your clients i mean that's that's how you make your money if no one was consulted i don't know if anyone's come forward you know part of the problem with something like your social media these days is you don't know how much of the social media is just one person making a lot of noise and how much of it is a group of people making a lot of noise, right? Yeah. You get your big hitters, like Among Us you mentioned, was someone who was most vocal because it impacted them the most, I would say, of anyone, right? Because they're very inexpensive, very fun. During the pandemic, everyone was playing Among Us, right? So it's like, how can you not involve someone like that in your decision because it impacts them the most. And it just seems like that means that they're out of touch with their community. Exactly. These are all opinions, by the way. This is not anything I've researched extensively. In somewhat recent news, I think within the last three days, the CEO is now gone from Unity, from what I've read. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Whether or not he made the call or not, it doesn't matter, right? It's it's more of like, they're trying to make it right by rebranding, I guess, is sort of what I t- what they're trying to do with their um, maneuvers. But is the new proposal, I've seen things where they said, it doesn't apply to old engines, it only applies to engines that you update now. I mean, they've made changes, but it still seems like they don't quite know exactly how it works from end to end. They can't explain that. And this is just something that I think was reported, I believe in Ars Technica, on their website, the GitHub repository that kept track of Unity's changes of terms of service access was removed for developers to that. Now, I don't know if that's because this thing is all up in the air and they're making changes to try and make it right or not, but do you know anything about that? Do you access that 
GitHub repository or have you? So from my understanding was um, the moment they revealed the first proposed changes, people were like, that can't be legal. So they went looking into the contracts. Right. And someone had found that Unity six months ago actually removed access to that GitHub repository and changed the contract so that it would work retroactively, as in they, they're allowed to change the contract for the past. But it used to not be like that. Mm. They had changed it without telling anyone, is what happened, and hid the old version so that people wouldn't be able to see the change happen. At least that was from what I got from the Twitter thread I was reading. <laughs> but um, right. Sorry, X thread, right? X Twitter. <laughs> oh yeah, my bad. I'm still going to call X, it Twitter. <laughs> Was there talk in the community itself about it? Because it sounds like that. I mean, people want to move the conversation out of. Were there people being silenced on the boards and stuff for? Uh, you know what? Don't don't answer that. That's that's probably a slippery slope for you. <laughs> I have no idea, but I know that that GitHub repository thing was part of like that first major negative point of the policy. The fact that Unity wanted to make the change retroactive, which is just. Not cool. Not cool. <laughs> to put it lightly, just not cool, dude. Just not cool. Just not cool. The new changes do help relieve at least most of the developers that are currently too late to change engines and still using Unity. Mm -hmm. At very least, the new proposed policies make it so you need to update Unity for the install fee to matter. And also the runtime installations they don't count them anymore. You count them yourself and you tell Unity. <laughs> yeah, I saw that in an article. I was like, really? <laughs> how do they enforce that even? Okay, so you want us to tell you how much money you charge us for fees. Really? Yeah, it's like... <laughs> it, that doesn't make any sense. Um, Can you make it free? Can you do that? That's like cheating on your taxes kind of thing. I mean, it's like, you know... <laughs> They added a cap to the amount that the installation fee can get to, which is, I forget, maybe 15%. I'm not sure, but at least there's a cap because there used to not be a cap. That was another problem with counting installation fees in the first place was that it was possible to lose money. If you sell a game at $2 a unit, but user installs and reinstalls a game multiple times because they wanted to change devices, because they're computer broke so they needed to reinstall the game that loses you money over time and there's a very real possibility that unity can bankrupt you as a company just from accumulating more and more fees that you cannot plan for nor recoup back you can't even stop it from happening if you stop selling the game people can still reinstall your game it all just seems like the whole legal ease like the the way the thing is supposed to work did not seem like it was well thought out or just even drawn up. You have lawyers working on that with you. That's the kind of stuff you need lawyers working on. And it, I don't yeah. I don't see any kind of thing where, okay, so here's the contract that we worked on with the lawyers and here's exactly what it says. I mean, I didn't see any evidence of that either. Like that's what you would have your lawyers involved with. You'd say, hey, yeah. is this right? Are we going to get sued for this or, you know, whatever. I didn't see any kind of information about that. Just to close this out, because we could probably go on for a long time about this. 
is it better now? And is there still a concern with developers as far as trust? Has this trust been violated to a point where even with games that are in development, for example, if, if yours is in development, I mean, is it, it's one of those risk assessment sort of things where is it going to cost more in the future if this game is really successful for you or do you move to an engine now, you know, and those costs are going to be, it's going to take longer. I mean, are those, those types of calculations are being made by developers now, whereas before they didn't have to think about that. Is that something that's a concern for you or are you guys just like, well, we developed it for this on this engine and we're just going to go forward with it and see what happens. It looks good if we've got a successful game. So we're just going to take it one step at a time. At least for us, it's too late to change engines. We have so many systems developed. It would take us another two years to finish the game if we had to change engines, which is not realistic for us being very small, very indie. Right. But um, I have seen many big developers, even like uh, in the middle of development, are changing engines completely out of Unity because of these policies. And I would say overall in the community, the, the trust has been eroded far too much by Unity that it will be an uphill battle for them to, to rectify that. When I worked at this company... I worked on a specific team that was kind of independent of the rest of the company that was like a support sort of structure. So it was software support. Mm -hmm. We were an independent team. We had our own servers. We had our own stuff. So one day someone thought it was a good idea to start playing Unreal Tournament on our lunches (laughs) while people were there, right? Yeah. And it was like, well, it's our own time. We're on our lunch, blah, blah, blah. The managers at the time said, yeah, it's okay because of you're still getting your work done. But the image that we projected was we're the team that plays games and doesn't do any work. Oh, yeah. So flash forward to three years later, we're still known as the team who doesn't do any work and plays (laughs) games, even though long ago that was taken care of. No more of that at work. You can't do that. Mm -hmm. But three years later still known as that team who doesn't do any work and just plays games. This kind of stuff doesn't go away, and it's very difficult to shake an image once you have that image. Yeah. There are countless examples of this throughout history. That's more of a commentary on this whole sort of thing. As I was doing a little bit of research on this, someone has designed a game that's called Install Fee Tycoon. <laughs> Wow. It's on Steam. It's just a it's just kind of a joke kind of clicker sort of thing. Install bases. You can install your virtual assistant, which is a paper clip, which is like Clippy from back in the old days, who tells you about all your stuff. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I haven't played it, but I just saw that and I was like, Oh my gosh. Chad Chatterson and the Chaos 3D Corporation are taking a page out of Unity Books in a new game called Install Fee Tycoon. That's on the Tech Radar website. Obviously a parody, but still one of those things where you're doing a parody, but you're still taking advantage of the environment. I think it would have been better if that game was developed on Unity. Yeah, that would have been funny. That's the way to make an impact is develop it on Unity and then put it out. Because they don't, I mean, uh, you know what? Let's drop the Unity because I have so many questions as a non-developer. It's like, you know. You know, Unity would have been a good word. 
has multiple meanings. Yeah, exactly. That's the thing. It's counterintuitive. It's an opposite. It's like what they're doing is not uniting their base and themselves, right? Yeah. Maybe for future, we can see if there's any unity news later on, maybe a retrospective in a couple of years, see what happens, like revisit this and see, has unity changed their tune? What does it look like for developers in a couple of years? So let's move on to the word nature. So your nickname or handle is axolotl the amphibian yeah the little um, amphibian yep are you from mexico or where are you from originally nope i'm from canada okay um that's born in canada i just i love axolotls because they look really cute okay (laughs) (laughs) there's no other reason honestly you know i was thinking there was more to it but no that's a good enough reason for me yeah the axolotl an endangered species i think So when I asked you what words you wanted to talk about, you came up with some really cool words, which I hope we can do later on in coming months or years, (laughs) unless I burn that bridge and I, and I insult you, which I'm not planning on doing, but you know, it's happened and it's probably going to happen again at some point choosing nature. Is that something that is based on environmental impact that we're having? Is it, what was the thought process for you on choosing the word nature? First of all, I thought it was interesting that it had two different meanings that are both very philosophical and there's the nature of something mm-hmm. and there's also nature in the environment, the, the world around us. And I, I love nature. I love camping, canoeing out here in the wilderness in Canada. It's really nice. Mm-hmm. What uh, area are you guys, uh, are you located in? I currently am in Montreal. Montreal. So that's uh, like um, in Quebec, Canada. There's a lot of great lakes, a lot of trees, greenery. It's very nice. In Canada, I've only been to Alberta. Oh yeah, that's great as well. I worked in Edmonton over a winter. I think it was like 2007 or something, but even that, was wonderful country out there. And then also I've been skiing in the Canadian Rockies around Calgary, but I've never been to Quebec. I know people in Canada, they always say, are you a hockey fan? That's like one of those things where if you're tall, people go, Hey, do you play basketball? (laughs) Is that something you get as a Canadian? It's like, Hey, do you like hockey? Um, It's kind of, it's part of like, like there are a few things that Canadians all have to do when they reach a certain age yeah that's just part of being a canadian that's what it means so everyone's played hockey and everyone likes hockey yeah (laughs) (laughs) one one, another part of it is uh, getting a cup of tim hortons yes i was gonna say tim hortons is another one of those canadian institutions right Exactly. everyone said uh yeah you gotta you gotta have your tim hortons before you leave alberta yeah the canadian institution known as Tim Hortons. So the nature of the Canadian. Exactly. Hockey. Not a lot of curling, I don't think, although isn't that Canadian invention curling? It's pretty popular, but not as popular for the young people, I guess. <laughs> right. Hockey is where it's at. Or are you a millennial or are you Gen Z? I think I'm at the cusp in between the two. I'm somewhere. I don't really know my generation. <laughs> Do you identify with one over the other? Do you think? I identify with millennial more than I, d- I identify with Gen Z. Yeah. There's some flying out there that I have no idea what it means anymore. <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. 
I am a proud Gen X. A proud. Whatever. I am Gen X. Let's just say that. That's my generation. But I think as far as the people who are on the cusp of millennial to Gen X, I'm more in that area than I am in the early Gen X's closer to the boomers. I'm not on the boomers side of the equation. I'm more towards the the millennial side of the equation as far as personally, the way I interact with technology. Yeah, you know how to use a computer. Exactly. The word nature, according to Oxford languages, the first definition, the noun, the phenomena of the physical world collectively, including plants, animals, the landscape, and other features and products of the earth, as opposed to humans or human creations. Mm -hmm. The physical force regarded as causing and regulating these phenomenon. The second definition, the basic or inherent features of something, especially when seen as characteristic of it. The innate or essential qualities or character of a person or animal. Inborn or hereditary characteristics as an influence on or determinant of personality is another one. So that's about it right there. That is nature. Let me just do the origin really quick. Oh, old French. Do you know French? Are you a French speaker? Yeah, yeah, I speak French. Okay, natura, that's what nature is in French? Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Natura, gotcha. I do not speak French. At least now I have someone I can ask how to pronounce things in French so I don't sound like an idiot on air. Uh, although I have, and I speak Quebecois French, which is different from Oh, French. okay. Quebecois French. How is that different than normal French? Is it just colloquialisms and things that are different? Kind of like people in the U.S. who are from Pennsylvania say some things that people in other areas do not. Kind of like that kind of thing. I'd say the connotation is almost like the southern accent. Oh, okay. Quebec was like the southern of of, uh, French. The southern equivalent of French. Okay. Quebecois. All right. Am I saying that properly? Quebecois? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's perfect. Excellent. At least I can say something in French. (laughs) But anyway, in Middle English, denoting the physical power of a person from Old French, from Latin, Natura, which is birth, nature, quality, from nat, which is born, from the verb nasi. Okay, so there we go. What is the first thing that you think of when I say the word nature, Eddie? Trees and uh, lake. Trees and lakes. Yeah, I have, a, I have an image of a lake surrounded by trees. Yeah. And maybe there's a few ducks in the middle of the lake. Ducks. <laughs> <laughs> Don't forget Canada, about, right? so. yeah, yeah, don't forget about those ducks. That's the image that comes to mind. Yeah, that's what I see. Is there anything that you make as far as an association to nature in your day-to-day life? Do you think people consider nature in day-to-day life as far as their surroundings, the environment? Or do you think people are just, I'm living here, I'm in this? I mean, what are your thoughts on people's day-to-day connection with nature? Hmm. I think... I feel like humans as a species kind of is very disconnected from nature in modern society, but there's always this inner yearning or longing to connect with nature in some way. So in a normal day-to-day life, it's pretty hard to find any 
significance with nature, but I think a lot of things are inspired by nature and we kind of take for granted a bit. Yeah. In small things like architecture, sometimes it's designed to look like trees or look like a canopy, wood grain, tables. Um. You're using resources from nature also for these things that are built that aren't natural structures, but they emulate those structures, right? Yeah. I kind of think of nature versus nurture, that whole argument when I think of the word nature. Oh, yeah. That's an interesting um, topic as well. Yeah. Are we born this way in nature or are we taught? And how much of that impacts us as far as our growth? I guess it definitely varies depending on the person. But, I mean, I don't know. It's it's one of those age-old arguments. And I don't know what the purpose of that argument is because we are what we are, right? I mean, is there is there really an argument? to be had on nature versus nurture. I'm not convinced it's an argument, but more of a question, which at least I, I'm like, a, I'm a scientist. <laughs> right. I, like uh, I, at university, I studied computer science and biology. Oh, wow. So I did, I did have my thoughts on this nature nurture yeah. topic, but I think, I think from a scientist perspective it's it's a question where it's a it's a question that biologists are asking is it nature or nurture mm-hmm. and so it's not a debate but rather a question and the answer of course is very complex right um, right there are yeah, exactly and the answer is it's somewhere in between some stuff are nature some stuff are nurture. there's nuance to it i'm not convinced it's a true debate rather than a yeah then it pro- not a, it's not a problem nor a debate. It's just just a, a question. question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Even just questions, people will have a tendency. It's in their nature. Ha uh-huh. ha. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. To try and debate things because they think that there is an answer, whereas you know there's not always an answer. It's it it's varied. Yeah. It's it's nuanced. I like the word nuanced. That would be another word for the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) We could just have a podcast where we're coming up with words for the podcast. Yeah, so nature, that's what you think of. You think of the duck and the lake and the camping. When did you get into camping? Um, When I think of someone working on computers and computer science, camping is not the thing I think of them liking to do. I have a very special kind of camping that I like to do, which is called urban camping, where I just go to a new city and just do all things in the city. That's <laughs> urban camping for me. Our family has always been a pretty outdoors type family, and my parents have brought me to go camping since I was very small. Okay. So I guess I kind of got fond of the experience. Even though my very day-to-day life is sitting in front of a computer, programming, being around all this tech, in an urban environment, I think that just makes it so I see camping as true escapism, mm-hmm. um, where I'm truly disconnected from like what I do every day, and I can it's like a comfort place. I can truly relax. Originally, I and my family were were from the Chicago area. I moved here to Tucson, Arizona, about now going on twenty some odd years ago. But one of the things that drew me here was just how beautiful it was and the nature and 
how different it was from not only just urban areas, but also just the way the biome is, you know, the yeah. desert and the way it works and, and the, the animals and the flora and all of that stuff, just so vastly different at a point in my life where I think I needed a change. My father uh, lived in Arizona for a number of years. I had a lot of exposure to nature activities, hobbies even. My father was on this fence where he loved nature, but he also loved the city. He hated camping though. (laughs) But he grew orchids for a while in Arizona and he had a greenhouse full, so one of his things that he enjoyed was nature as far as growing things. Do you have any hobbies like that that involve nature? Um, not myself. No, just appreciate it for what it is sort of things. Yeah, I, I mean, I do, I also do a few nature sports, like skiing-ish. Orienteering or? No, hiking, just kind of like sports that are it's around nature. <laughs> Nature adjacent sports. Adjacent. I do a dragon boating as well, which is a type of team paddling. What is that? Dragon? Dragon boat. It's a big boat that has like 20 people on it and you paddle. It's like a racing thing, but you know, it's close to the water. Is it like crew? It's similar, but the boats are bigger. There's more people on the boat. Okay. Um, and you, you paddle rather than row. Oh, okay. Okay. So, yeah. So it's not like crew is, so, is there's there's yeah, actually like, the row, like there's a full range of motion that you're doing with, with that, whereas paddling is... It's still quite extensive, but um, paddling is one-sided. That's the major difference. You, okay. Um, rowing, you kind of like, you pull two paddles at the same time, and you're like rowing backwards, I guess. Gotcha. I should have thought of that. That makes sense. Yeah, rowing and paddling. But yeah, it's still like a team sport um, on the water. So you have no control over what the other side is doing. And my guess is there's a lot of communication involved in that, yeah? Yeah, it's mostly um, timing. So mm-hmm. there's actually a drummer at the front of the boat that keeps the time for everyone. Oh, okay. They, they don't actually drum, but they yell at you. <laughs> but we call it the drummer because historically... It's a, there's a drum there. So right, is this a popular sort of thing, or is this just something that you enjoy doing? I mean, is there a popularity of it in Canada? It might actually be more popular in Canada than the U.S., but it's it's very. There's a lot of Asian people in it. Okay. Because it, I think it originated in China. Okay. And I'm Chinese Canadian, and a lot of my friends did Dragon Boat as well. Gotcha. And pardon me for my ignorance, and it, it's not meant to be racial or anything. What is boba tea? Is that Chinese? Boba tea? Uh, that's bubble tea. Boba. It's um, I don't I don't actually know if it came from China, but I, it's very popular in Asian communities. It's it's a drink. It's like it's milk tea with um, tapioca bubbles at the bottom. Yeah, the first time I'd had bubble tea was when I was in Canada, one of the students that I taught in the class while I was there introduced me to bubble tea. Do you have any interest in going to other biomes, places that are like Arctic or the desert, or do you just like staying where you are and communing with that type of nature? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I I, I love seeing new types of 
nature, I guess. Yeah. Well, it's like the the forest is very comfortable here for me. So I don't know if I would go camping in um in somewhere unfamiliar. It might be very. It might be scary. Probably wouldn't go camping in the desert. But it's like Canada has a lot of these views, but they're all pretty similar to each other. We have like huge waterfalls and forests, or big mountains and lakes and forests and more forests. It's kind of like, did you have a chance while you were in Seattle to go to any of the Mount Rainier or any of those places while you were there? Or was it just business trip for promoting the game? That was business only. We didn't, we barely had time to uh, discover the city. Because that area is beautiful too. Yeah. I'd gone to the U.S. a few times, um, like uh, Utah, Yellowstone. Those are all very nice. If you ever have a chance in Arizona, see the Grand Canyon, that's... It is pretty amazing. It's something you cannot explain to someone how vast it is. I mean, it's just, yeah, you know, it's just so great. It's grand. It is grand. Yes. It is grand as in awesome. Not my generation saying awesome for everything. It is truly awesome. It should be called the awesome Canyon. You know what? That's what we should do. We should change it to the awesome Canyon. I think awesome awesome needs to be. Yeah, we need it'll to. Re- be, it'll be better publicity. I think it's better publicity, and then also we need to reestablish what awesome actually is because awesome means something different now than it used to. It should mean like evoke awe, awesome. Correct. Yes. Yeah. There's a lot of really cool stuff in Tucson, which is where I'm from. We've got a desert museum, which is a really cool museum that focuses on all the desert life i used to go there occasionally they have things like the raptor exhibit which people think that i'm talking about dinosaurs but i'm not talking about dinosaurs i'm talking about the birds right yeah yeah and they do like kind of a feeding demonstration are basically dinosaurs well yeah but i mean you know the ones that we think of nowadays now raptors not velociraptors yeah yeah so let's get into video games the word nature and video games. Is there anything involving nature that you're playing currently or that you can relate to nature? The most recent game that I've played and finished was a puzzle game called Cocoon. Yeah, I've heard about that. Can you explain to people what that is? So it's a puzzle game in which you play as a little insect type creature and you are moving around these different worlds filled with bio organic um, contraptions, different puzzle mechanics, Mm -hmm. but it's all really beautiful and all very well designed. But it does, it's not, it's not the nature that we're used to. It's not the planet Earth, but it's sort of a fictional. Yeah. These alien worlds are still very, very beautiful and very elegant in how they look and how it all works together. Really unique art style too. Yeah. Yeah, that looks really cool. Is it puzzles as in your platformer style puzzle game? Or is it, like when you say puzzle game, what does that mean to you? So Cocoon itself was from one of the lead designers of the studio that made Inside and Limbo. Oh, okay, yeah. Which were those atmospheric puzzle platformers. But Cocoon itself, I would say, is actually a pretty big brain teaser. Like uh, it's It's a true puzzle game where you solve these logical puzzles. But it's just inside this really beautiful world. 
a lot more colorful than the two previous games. Yeah, which are both black and white. <laughs> and kind of creepy, both. Does this have a good a good story to it? Are you a story guy when it comes to your games, or are you more of a game mechanics or a little bit of both? I think it depends on my mood. I'm actually quite a big movie person, so I do like my stories. Yeah. But I guess movies are where I usually get my stories. So the games I play and make are likely more mechanical in nature because I have enough share of, of stories in other media. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Cocoon itself does have a underlying story, but similar to inside or it's not very spelled out to you there's no dialogue in the game there's no there's no text written right it's all up to interpretation right right that seems to be a trend in games because i know that i talked to you about animal well i mean you just have to figure it out you're put into this environment you're told nothing there are no tutorials there's no instructions you just wander around and you figure it out is that kind of the way cocoon is yeah it has a similar vibe to it, yeah. Interesting. Yeah, that's very cool. It looks very beautiful. Do you know the developer, or is this just something you found on your own, or is it, how do you get introduced to games? Do you just, like everyone else, read and listen to the industry folks, or friends tell you about them, and you just check them out? Um, well, I mean, kind of as part of my working on Starvaders, I've kind of figured out a way to try to keep track of every single game that's coming out. <laughs> Okay. As okay. part of maybe market analysis or, oh. or understanding the industry, understanding how to market the game. So yeah. I yeah, I try to keep track of any high profile indie games that are coming out just to see how they did it. Right? Yeah, yeah. Research. Research, exactly. I need to be one of those guys. Play video games for my job. That'd be great. Is it mostly indie games for you these days because of that market research? Or do you also keep track of your larger AAA studio style games? Are there any of those games that you're interested in? Or is it mostly focused for you on sort of the purity of an independently developed game? I've, I've never been a huge fan of AAA games. There are, there are some that I do quite enjoy, but, but I always um, lean towards these indie type experiences more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm not I'm not keeping track of triple A industry news <laughs> that much. Yeah. So you're not you're not excited about the new Robocop game that's coming out. Uh, I think that was that, it looks pretty cool. Oh my it's, gosh. People are freaking out about it. They're I'd going, say it's double A at least, right? <laughs> I heard somewhere where it was developed by a smaller group of people, but it looks pretty accurate to the movie. It's pretty it's pretty cool. Yeah, did you like Robocop the movie? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, not the not the new one. No, not the new one. The old Paul Verhoeven. I'm a, I'm like a horror geek, so I okay. So the the gore is awesome. Robocop. You, like the practical effects is what you're you're talking about. Like, yeah, exactly. The practical effects. So you probably have strong opinions about the thing that was the supposed to be the precursor. The prequel. Right. The prequel. Yeah, I mean. I don't have like anger. It's more disappointment <laughs> more than anything. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Is my feelings worth it? I think it could have been good, but um, and there are some neat ideas in it. I like that it it connects very well to the first movie, especially the ending. Just straight up leads 
directly to the first movie is really cool. But yeah, the CGI monster is very sad. Oh, you, you're talking about the one that has the guy's face in it? <laughs> Most of the, um, the creature in the prequel was like enhanced by CGI or something, which yeah, yeah. didn't look that good. And also, I think the feeling of that movie, there wasn't... There wasn't the suspense built like it was in the first movie. You know what I mean? Yeah. It was just kind of like stuff would happen. Like like the guy's arm, they're carrying the guy in and his arm gets, you know, like. Yeah. There wasn't really sort of a suspenseful sort of thing to it. Like in the original with the guy who's trying to resuscitate the other dude and the big chest cavity thing bites his arms off. Yeah. Like that was like, holy crap. You weren't expecting that kind of thing. I think they were just relying on the fact that they were going to get some of those practical effects, and I think that the studio had other ideas. Yeah. I am not a horror fan, by the way. Mm-hmm. I do not like <laughs> horror movies. But I am aware of them, and I think some of the technical stuff that they do with those practical effects is amazing. Yeah, for sure. So you're playing Cocoon, you or you just finished Cocoon. Yeah, just finished Cocoon. I feel like it does show off a lot of nature environment even though it's not our own nature it, it is still very beautiful right. it's not steeped in realism yeah it's got its own style but you're still interacting with nature but stylized did you ever play the game spore yeah when i was a child <laughs> was that something you really enjoyed like that sandbox kind of game back then back then yeah i had i pretty much i had a lot of fun with spore just a creature creator. More of a creature creator and less of a trying to build this world with its own ecosystem. It was more just creatures. Sport didn't really have a lot of ecosystem systems in place. It had interesting ideas, but I wouldn't say it truly explored nature. I think it might have tried to do too many things at the same time and couldn't focus on one. Yeah, that's a problem I think that AAA games have more than your independent developers. I think independent, you have a clear idea, more clear. I don't want to just blanket statement, right? Yeah. But I mean, I think with independent developers, you develop that vision and it's focused, whereas your larger games that have 50, 60 different people doing different aspects, it's it's hard to get those things to combine. For some reason, that made me think of um, Octopus. <laughs> You know how octopuses in each of their tentacles, there's like a mini brain that like oh yeah yeah kind of yeah controls their own tentacles. So I I almost imagine the triple A studio is like a big octopus, and but the problem is that you don't have one central brain controlling everything anymore. It's so big that you need these mini brains controlling each of the arms, and they might not coordinate as well as it would have been if it was one single brain. Yeah, which is would be the independent studio. It's a lot easier to have your hands on everything to make sure it's part of the vision when there's not that many pieces moving. Scope creep, I think, is also a big thing, and I think that probably can happen more frequently in a AAA than it does in an independent. Yeah. When you're talking independent developers, you've got a small group of people developing something, so it's a lot easier to focus on keeping it together you know what that's also a question to ask a developer for me is what do you think of developing a game is it a commodity or is it art 
what is developing a game to you? Uh, uh, <laughs> it's, it's a very complex question. I, I mean, I, the way I view art is, well, I think everything is art. Mm -hmm. So I, I think art is really, it's less the product and more the um, empty space between the viewer and the product. So art wouldn't exist without an interpreter or a or a perspective, right? So anything that can be criticized, can have, can evoke feelings would be, could be considered art. In that way, all games are art. Mm -hmm. But from my developer perspective, for some reason, I don't see our game as art. I see our game as a game. <laughs> Starvaders is a game. Okay. If you can develop a feeling about something, I guess, subject to interpretation, I guess you can call everything art, but... It is art in the sense that while we're making it, we are trying to evoke a specific feeling in the player. We want the player to feel powerful, to feel smart. Mm -hmm. But for me personally, it's not the actual story that I want to tell, if that makes sense. Okay. I, like, I still want to... It's It's still a product i'm very happy about and i do want to tell this i do want to make the player feel powerful and all of that but it's not it's not the it's not a story that I, i've been willing to tell gotcha. for a long time uh -huh. it's 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 very weird distinction <laughs> i do some oil-based pastels on canvas lately i've been doing mostly digital stuff for the uh the shows right i, I do little bits of art for each episode but with the oil-based pastels on canvas, it was usually something that I would do to get a feeling out there. And then once it's done, there is sort of a, an association or a disassociation with that. It's like, well, that's what I was feeling at that time. Uh -huh. But that doesn't mean that I think it's good or it's just something I did to manage emotions and such. Other people can connect with it. I was like, oh, well, this is wonderful. It's like, what does that mean to you? viewer who loves this piece because this is what it means to me i want to hear what it means to someone else first before i tell them where it came from because i don't want to color their interpretation yeah. so it's just one of those things that's like you're going to get 30 different answers for the same question whether something is a piece of art or not yeah so the nature game that i was talking about or i was thinking about and speaking of triple a I've been playing Monster Hunter now, the new Niantic people yep. who made Pokemon Go, those folks. I've been hunting monsters lately. <laughs> Is it like Pokemon Go where you walk around and and like outside to catch monsters? Yeah. Correct. Yep. Yeah. And you've got things, you've got your little Palico who goes out and he does. Are you familiar with the Monster Hunter universe at all? Or a little bit anyway? Not at all. Okay. Not at all. I know there's monsters. Okay. You've got a little cat friend, I guess indentured servant, because, I mean, he just goes out and he does stuff for you. But anyway, he'll collect things for you from nature, but you can also click on them. There are various things in the environment. It picks up, like, landmarks and stuff where you can mine things. But then also the landscape changes as the the cycles of the day change. There's kind of a piece of it that is sort of augmented reality to that you can put your monster 
wherever you want to in the world, but I mean, it's just for taking pictures, right? It's not like you're doing a lot of augmented reality stuff. Yeah. Um, it's just something I've been doing instead of listening to political podcasts, I play my monster hunter when I go on my nightly walks. Cause you pretty much have to go on a nightly walk in Arizona cause it's so friggin' hot here. Night's the best time to walk. You collect materials, you kill the monsters, you harvest their carcass for whatever the harvest their carcass. Where did that come from? Yeah. You, you harvest their parts. I, that doesn't sound better. That sounds just bad. <laughs> you use their parts to build and change your weapons and, and things. And I haven't met anyone in real life who plays it, but I know before I go to work, I've got to go to the coffee shop and then walk about a block down the street so I can harvest all my materials and then walk back to the coffee shop before I go to work every day. It's kind of ridiculous. But it is its own sort of nature, right? You've got different things yeah. in the environment that you're concerned with and trying to harvest. It's not very realistic. You don't have like monsters attacking other monsters. It's kind of basic. But did you play Pokemon Go back in the day at all or no? Yeah, but just for a bit when, uh, when, when everyone had it. It's pretty much more of the same, but it's set in the Monster Hunter universe. So if you were into Monster Hunter, you might want to check it out, but... Are there any other games that come to mind as far as games you've played that are involved in nature, be it the nature of people or nature in general? For At least for environment nature, when you mentioned sandbox at some point during the discussion, it made me think of Minecraft, which admittedly is a very, very nature-based game. <laughs> oh, yeah. My friend Andrew recently did a tasting of suspicious stew-flavored Pringles on a show. <laughs> suspicious stew flavored he didn't get any buffs or anything unfortunately i guess it doesn't include the buffs that you would get in minecraft but false advertisement exactly no buffs man yeah so minecraft it just drop you off in uh in nature and you have to solve everything yourself cut down trees you get wood everything you build is out of these elements that you've found in nature and you can even reshape the nature too by placing the blocks everything's modular do you play minecraft still or was that just a game that you are aware it is emulating things in nature kind of game i haven't played it in a while but i have um, played it before it's a huge game it's still out there is it maybe still the most popular game ever or has that been replaced by like fortnite you know what i do not know and how do you measure popularity i mean what does that mean yeah <laughs> I think that ebbs and flows with time, but I do know at one point, yes, it was one of the more, if not the most popular game. I don't know about Fortnite. I like playing all types of games in general, but just that kind of game I have to be in a mood for. And to me, it's not enjoyable most times. When I play games, I want to be told a story usually. And the game mechanics, they have to be fun in order for me to continue but it's more about the story and less about the mechanics. I can have some kludgy mechanics. No, I haven't really been in 80s competitive multiplayer type games either. Is there going to be a multiplayer in this or player versus player stuff in uh, Star Vaders? No, it's, it's, a, it's pretty much a fully single player um, strategy experience. Yeah. We might at some point add a leaderboard just to like see if your score is better than other players, but um, it's not meant to be truly competitive. Gotcha. 
One final question before we close the show here. Okay. As a gamer, do you think that realistic ecosystems can be built in an open world game? Do you want realistic ecosystems within that? Or is there a benefit to that as far as a game's concerned, in your opinion? I wouldn't say realistic ecosystems, but having a ecosystem that makes sense and is dynamic, evolves to respond to the player's interactions, mm-hmm. can create these emergent moments in games that are very special. Yeah. For example, I think one game that does this type of system very well is the recent Zelda games, which lets you experiment with physics in its um, in its world, right? And lets you create these machines and all of that. And those are these kind of emergent mechanics that only exist in an ecosystem. For example, like if there's like, you can make enemies attack each other, things like that. And these emergent systems are very fun for players because they're not planned. They're surprises every time they happen. Right. Or like it could make you feel smart when you try to figure out how it works and make it happen yourself. Yeah, I think there is value in uh, creating these type of ecosystems in games just from the emergent nature of them. Yeah. In, in ecosystems and games can be interpreted. We're not just talking like about a natural sort of ecosystem. We're also talking about when you said that I thought of Baldur's Gate three about feeling smart because you can figure things out that other people haven't from what I've heard in a, in a Baldur's Gate three, it's not so much about the natural ecosystem, but it's, it's about the game ecosystem itself it's like it's, it's like the world of the game reacts to the player in all types of ways it's a real world in the game yeah yeah exactly eddie i want to thank you so much for being on the show i really appreciate it i hope you enjoyed yourself thank you yeah i, I really did it was a really nice talk thank you audience for tuning in to this week's episode of the too vague podcast my name is ben My name's Eddie. And we've been your hosts. Have a wonderful night. Bye. Bye.